studying through the book of James together. Uh, and if you remember, if you weren't here last week, James, the book is written by Jesus' half-brother. Joseph and Mary had children together after Jesus was born. And this is one of uh, the brothers that Jesus was, was raised with, uh, one of his younger half-brothers. And James became a believer and became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. <coughs> Excuse me. He wrote to Jewish believers who were facing a variety of hardships, and they'd been scattered by persecution all around the Roman world. Uh, these early Christians, they felt ostracized. They were attacked for their faith, and so they were unsure how to live out their lives, how to live out the, the teachings of Jesus in the face of these kinds of hardships. And so James wrote to them to help them understand how their faith, and, and he's writing to us, how our faith must be a faith of action, a faith that works, that our beliefs that we spent so much time this year studying, our beliefs should affect our behavior, how we live our lives. And I explained last week how James really had three goals in this letter. He wanted to comfort these believers as they lived out their faith in the real world, but he also wanted to rebuke them for the times that they allow the world to infect their lives and influence their faith. And then he wanted to, uh, to kind of equip them and counsel them in how to be salt and light, how to live their lives in such a way that they were an influence on the world around them, not the other way around. And James jumps right into that first goal here in chapter 1 of comforting these believers as they deal with a variety of hardships. So just by way of review, let's look at those first four verses together in James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, I imagine these initial readers of James's letter were a little shocked and surprised at his prescription for how to deal with these trials. Count it all joy. Consider it great joy. You know, what is James getting at? How, how can he say this? Well, it's because he was firmly convinced that their suffering wasn't meaningless. James fully believed that God could take whatever it was they were dealing with and use it to help them grow and mature, to become complete people. And if we trust God enough, I believe that we'll discover that He can use any trial that we face to refine our faith, to produce endurance in us, and to help us grow spiritually mature and be complete, lacking Nothing. Now, as we continue today, James is still addressing this topic of trials. He's still dealing with the hardships that we face. And, and he said in verses 1 through 4, we need spirit, the spiritual fruit of joy. We need that joy of the Lord to give us a right attitude about our trials so we can endure them and mature through them. But there's something else we also need. In addition to joy, we need wisdom. We need wisdom. Now, James links these two needs, these two ideas of, of joy in our trials and wisdom for our woes. He links them together with this word, lack. Look at the end of verse 4. 
so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. But then he goes right into verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom. That word lack is, is what connects these ideas together. And it's because we're still in process, right? We're still maturing. We're still, none of us have arrived yet, have we? None of us are complete and, and totally mature in our faith. We do lack some things. Namely, wisdom. We lack wisdom for our woes. James is saying that wisdom is essential as joy. And remember, I said last week, we can't manufacture joy. Joy isn't something you can just kind of make yourself have. It's something the Spirit of God produces within you. It's a fruit of the Spirit. God helps you to have this inner joy as the Spirit works in your heart. Well, in a similar way, wisdom isn't something we can teach ourselves. You can't go to the library and read enough books to give you wisdom. Wisdom isn't something you just, you know, sit down on some mountain somewhere and home yourself into wisdom. It's not how that works. Proverbs, in fact, warns us against leaning on our own limited understanding. Proverbs 9.10 says that that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. True wisdom and understanding is found in God. It's rooted in Him. So let's pick up James' idea here in verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. So last week was the first command... In James's letter, I, I told you that there are 59, I think it was 59 commands in James's letter. The first one is, count it all joy. The second one is, get wisdom. Obtain wisdom. That's what James tells us here. And I want us to look at what James tells us about the importance of godly wisdom as we face trials and how we can gain this wisdom that we lack. And the first point is that trials demand wisdom. Trials demand wisdom, which is why verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God and it will be given to him. Every, now, every circumstance in life requires wisdom, doesn't it? Marriage, marriage needs wisdom. You want to have a happy marriage. Parenting, well, you're parenting, you need wisdom. Uh, finances, to make good, wise financial decisions, we need wisdom. We need wisdom to navigate our rapidly changing world. We need wisdom to know how to think about and deal with current events and issues. So asking God for wisdom is always a good idea. But I can't think of any situation in which we need wisdom more than in a moment of crisis. We need the wisdom of God. Now let's stop right here for just a minute and let's define some terms. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? How is wisdom different from knowledge? Well, we can think about it this way. If knowledge is information, then wisdom is application. If knowledge is theoretical, wisdom is practical. If knowledge is the what, wisdom is the when, where, why, and how. Or we can think about it in terms of driving a car. Now, I could know everything there is to know about cars. 
I could name every part. I could be able to take an engine apart and put it back together. I could have all this knowledge about cars and I could be a terrible driver. Right? Or I could know nothing about cars, do it know the first thing about changing a tire or a spark plug, and I could be an expert driver and never go over the speed limit and never have a wreck. Right? So, and I, I'm neither of those, by the way. I neither know much about cars nor am I a great driver, so I don't know where that leaves me. But... But it's like in life we're kind of tooling around, right? We're tooling around in life and suddenly someone darts out in front of us. Suddenly there's a pothole that appears in front of us. And in those situations, we need to know how to respond in an alert and safe way. Life's difficulties are like that driver that cuts you off. It's like that blowout tire. It's like that pothole that comes out of nowhere. We're we're driving along the road of life and suddenly a trial comes unsought, unexpected. There's a variety of them. We talked about this last week. We need wisdom from God to know how to respond so that we don't misrepresent God, so that we don't misinform others about what the Bible teaches. We need wisdom so we can make the situation better and not worse. You ever did something in a a time of crisis that actually made things worse? We don't want to do that. We need wisdom to make them better and wisdom so that we can be a good witness to other people as we endure these difficulties of life. But oftentimes, if we're honest, what we end up doing is just driving the car of faith into the ditch, don't we? We often don't get it right because we lack wisdom. In his commentary on James, David Plant describes wisdom as equal parts knowledge, perspective, and experience. And he says that if we lack wisdom, it's because one or more of these elements are in short supply. He said, when we walk through trials, we realize we don't know all that's going on, that we lack knowledge. We don't see our situation from every angle. We lack perspective. And we often lack experience in what we're supposed to do. Now, God's wisdom is perfect. It is complete. He he has all the knowledge there is. His perspective is eternal. Through the incarnation, God the Son has experienced every trial, every test, every temptation, and prevailed. So if we're lacking the necessary facts to properly assess our situation, if my perspective is limited, it's skewed, I've got some blind spots, if I don't have the experience to handle this situation in the right way, then I need to come to the one whose wisdom is complete and mature and perfect and lacking nothing. We need wisdom to see our trials from God's perspective. That's how we count it all joy, by looking at our trials from God's perspective. We need wisdom to know how to meet the trials head on and deal with them in a right way. And again, this wisdom doesn't come from ourselves. I'm lacking this wisdom I need this wisdom from God. And so that's the second point, is that wisdom comes by prayer. The trials demand wisdom, and wisdom comes to us by prayer. James says, now, if any of you lacks wisdom, are you in that if any of you? (laughs) I am. We all are. None of us are sufficient in and of ourselves to face life's trials, but our God is sufficient for us. And so James directs us to ask God for this wisdom that we lack, and and as has been illustrated, how do we ask God for this wisdom? Through prayer. Prayer is such an amazing resource for us. 
it connects our poverty to God's riches. It connects our weakness with His strength and our foolishness with His wisdom. You know, think about prayer like a pipeline. Prayer is a pipeline from God's sufficiency to our inadequacy. We need prayer. Now, most of us in difficult times, we do pray, right? In fact, most of the times if somebody asks me to pray for them or with them, it's because they're facing a surgery or an illness. It's because they're in grief. It's they're, they're having to make a life-changing decision. It's because there's some moment of crisis in their life. So the question right here isn't at this moment that we pray, but what do we pray? James is challenging us to evaluate the content of our prayers because most of us... We pray for God to lift the trial off of us. Or we pray for God to help us avoid the trial altogether. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. And like I said last week, none of us want difficulties. None of us are out there seeking for these trying times, but they do come to us. But has it occurred to us to pray for the wisdom to handle the trial already before us? Have we asked God to help us Deal with life's difficulties in a way that honors and glorifies Him. That will help us to be a good example to others, to help us become a source of encouragement and comfort to others. Do we ask God to use our difficulties to help us develop endurance and to grow in maturity and to count it all joy? Now, in this imperative to pray for wisdom, we see one of the most beautiful promises of prayer in all of Scripture. Look what James says. We should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, or some translations might say without reproach or without fault. There are two truths about prayer for us to understand in this passage. The first is the prayer is an absolute necessity. It's an absolute necessity. As I said, it's the second command in James's letter. It's not a suggestion. It's not, hey, here's a nice idea. Hey, you should try this. It's a command. James is saying, don't even try to face your trials in your own limited understanding. Don't mistakenly think that you have any wisdom apart from our all-knowing sovereign God because you don't. Our wisdom is foolishness. Whereas we heard in our Old Testament reading in Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean, do not rely on your own understanding, but in all your ways, know, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. So let's be logical here. If I lack wisdom about something, I have to seek that wisdom from someone else, right? And the Bible implores us time and again to go to God as that ultimate source of wisdom and truth because His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are deeper than our thoughts. He knows and sees and understands everything. So prayer is an absolute necessity. But secondly, praying, asking is rooted in God's character. It's rooted in God's character. And we're going to look at two aspects of that character in a minute. But look at this phrase. He should ask God who gives generously. Now that verb, uh, gives, is a present active participle for you language nerds out there. And so you could literally translate this as the constantly giving God. He doesn't just give once. 
He gives constantly. The very nature of our God is one of generosity. He gives and gives and gives and gives again and again. Look down at verse 17 in James 1. James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He is a generous God who only knows how to give good gifts. Our God doesn't know how to give a bad gift. You're probably given a bad gift. You know, you forget at the last minute, oh no, somebody's anniversary or birthday, and, and you get something just spur of the moment. God doesn't do that. He gives only good and perfect gifts. And of course, we know that the greatest mention of God's giving nature is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son. If God won't hold back from giving His one and only Son, do you think He's going to hold back from giving you anything that's good and true and right and helpful? No. And that's because two things about this giving character of God that James mentions. First is that He gives without hesitation. He gives without hesitation. That word generously also in the Greek can be translated as sincerely. It has this idea of being single-minded. Now, James is going to link that in verse 8 to our double-mindedness. That God is single-minded, but we are double-minded. And James contrasts that, how God is single-minded in answering our prayers while we are often double-minded in asking them. And we'll look at that a little bit more in a moment. But James's point is that God's not a miser. He doesn't delight in withholding His blessings from His children. Someone has suggested that we should think of God's generous nature in terms of a pitcher that's always tilted and ready to pour. That's God's nature. His pitcher of blessings is always tilted and ready to pour and fill our cups to the brim and even to overflowing. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, Jesus explains it this way. He said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and a door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then Jesus makes a comparison between God and us. He says, who among you, if the son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Well, no loving parent would do that. And so he says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Our God is a good Father. He loves to give good things to His children. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. But we must pray with persistence. We must ask And we must ask believing that God is a God who gives without hesitation. And secondly, that God is a God who gives without finding fault. He gives without hesitation, and He gives without finding fault. You remember the story of the prodigal son? Here's a wealthy man, he's got two sons, and his youngest son basically says, Dad, you're dead to me, give me my portion of the inheritance, I'm out of here. And he takes his fortune and he goes to a foreign land and he wastes it all on women and wine, on booze and parties and and gambling, and he ends up with nothing. He's destitute. He's 
He's slopping pigs for a living and he's sleeping and eating with those pigs. It's as bad as bad could get, especially for a Jewish young man. And one day he comes to his senses and he says, why am I doing this? My father has servants who live better than this. I'm going to go home to my dad and I'm going to tell him how sorry I am and ask him, please hire me on as a servant. I'm not worthy to be considered your son anymore. I told you that you were dead to me, but would you hire me on as your servant? So the son makes his way back, kind of reciting this little speech in his head. Well, unknown to him, his dad has been going out on the front porch every day and looking down that dusty road, just hoping and praying for his son to come home. And on this day when he sees his son walking down that road, his dad goes running, throws his arms open wide, embraces his son, kisses him on the neck, weeps on his shoulders, says, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. doesn't even let his son get his little speech. And he, he calls for his robes, his best robes, his best sandals. He puts a signet ring on his finger. He says, we're going to throw a party for you. Now listen. When we stray from God and find ourselves sleeping with the pigs, when we try to lean on our own understanding and end up in a tangled mess, but then we come to our senses and we come back to God, He runs to us. He embraces us in His arms. He throws a party for us. He doesn't throw our faults into our face. He throws a party for us instead. That's the God that we worship. That's the God that we love. He gives and forgives ungrudgingly. He doesn't say, I told you so. You get what you deserve. Why? Because God knows what stuff we're made of. God, God has no delusions about our weaknesses. He knows fully our faults, our limitations, what we lack. And He never grows weary of our neediness. There's never a time you come to God in prayer and He says, you again? What is it this time? He doesn't do that. He gives without reprimanding us for our requests. He he never scolds us for our weaknesses. He is infinitely understanding and patient and long-suffering. He's merciful and gracious. He delights in hearing our prayers and meeting our needs. He's a God who gives without hesitation, without finding fault. We look at the life of Jesus. We consider His temptation in the wilderness, His weeping in the Garden of Gethsemane, His, his grief over Lazarus' death. These things remind us that God understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands why we struggle. He doesn't find us at fault for being human. Or as David put it so wonderfully in Psalm 103, 12-14, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him, for He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So in our dustiness, in our neediness, as we struggle with difficulties in our lives and we need wisdom far beyond our own limited knowledge and perspective and understanding, we can come to God with boldness, with courage, because trials demand such wisdom and the only way we can have that wisdom is is to go to our all-knowing, all-seeing, all-wise God. Wisdom comes by prayer. And finally, James links all of this with one of his primary themes in this book. 
and he tells us that prayer requires faith. Let's look back at verse 6. But let him ask in faith, without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Now, this is one of three key passages here that James addresses prayer in his letter. In chapter 4, he's going to address the reasons for unanswered prayer. And basically what James is going to say is that the problem isn't with unanswered prayers. The problem is with unasked prayers. We must pray. We have to take the initiative to actually bring our request to God. We have to ask, seek, and knock. First, we have to pray. And then James will deal with our motives in prayer, but here in this passage it's all about our faith in prayer, our faith. Now the primary word in the New Testament for faith, uh, whether it's, it's the noun or the verb, it's, it's pistis or pistuo, depending on the noun or the form. Pistis or pistuo is the Greek words for faith, for believing. And they mean to have a rock, solid trust in someone, to have complete confidence in someone. It's not about your ability to generate this kind of faith. Because like joy and wisdom, faith is a gift. Faith isn't something that you can drum up on your own. Faith is something that the Spirit of God gives you. And this faith, this confidence, this trust in God, again, it's not, you know, we get fixated on, oh boy, you know, she has a lot of faith. Or I wish I could have as much faith as him. It's not so much that they have more faith. It's that they have greater confidence in who God is. It's not about our ability and level to have faith. It's about how much God's character deserves trust and confidence. And so the more we know God, the more we spend time with God, the more we step out and ask God for things, and as the song says, prove Him or and or, our faith will grow because we gain greater confidence and trust in the God who is worthy of that faith. Does that make sense? And so James isn't telling us here how to have faith, but how to guard our faith, how to protect our faith. And to do that, we have to avoid two tendencies. The first is doubt. Doubt. He says, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. Now, this doubt doesn't mean that, you know, I have questions. There are things I don't understand. That's not doubt. Doubt doesn't mean that you, you know, hey, I just have it all figured out and I know everything and I, you know, that's not doubt either. He's talking about actively Doubting God. This is a verb. Doubting. It's not, it's not just a feeling that you have. And James describes this doubt as like being driven and tossed by the wind and the waves. Just back and forth. Our prayers for wisdom should not alternate between faith and unbelief. We must endure in the confidence that God will answer our prayer according to His will. I know a lot of people have been to the beach this year, right? This summer, been to the beach. And so maybe you've been out in the ocean on a floaty or a, uh, you know, a, a boogie board or a kayak or something. Maybe you've just kind of been floating around in the waves. And if you kind of get caught up in a current that kind of starts to pull you away from your spot on the beach, maybe even pull you out further into the water, it can get a little scary, can it? 
can even be dangerous. Every year you hear some story about somebody who kind of drifts off out there and they can't make it back. And that's because we're, we're untethered. We're adrift. We're not rooted. We're not anchored to that spot. We're at the mercy of the peaks and the valleys of the waves. We're at the mercy of the wind. We're going in and out and up and down, adrift and tossed about. And in the same way, the doubter is completely out of control. He, he's adrift. He's on a dangerous wild ride to nowhere. Faith is like the anchor that keeps us rooted and stable in our prayers. Where we don't let our emotions and our worries and our stresses and our doubts lead us away from depending on God, from being confident in Him. We don't let the things the pagans run after distract us from seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. We avoid doubt. Because doubt ultimately is the second thing we avoid. It leads to double-mindedness. The doubter is a double-minded person, unstable in all his ways. Now again, this contrasts with James' earlier description of God as being generous or sincere or single-minded. That single-mindedness of God. Now you may say, David, I understand. What's the connection between being generous and being single-minded? Let me ask you this. Let's say you came to me for some help. And I don't know, you found yourself in some trouble. You're in a situation. You need maybe some financial help or you need me to you know, give you a job or you, you know, need to borrow a car or something like that. And let's say you come to me for that help and I say, oh, I'm so glad to help. I'm here to serve. Please take this. No, I, I'm glad I could help you. Don't pay me back. But on the inside, I'm secretly regretting it. On the inside, I'm blaming you for getting yourself into this mess. On the inside, I'm like, I'm not ever helping you again. On the inside, as I'm making you this generous offer, on the inside, I'm thinking, I hope that you turn me down because I don't really want to give you this money. Am I being single-minded or double-minded? Am I being sincere or insincere? Am I really being generous or am I just being begrudgingly helpful? That's the connection between generosity and single-mindedness. And when God answers our prayers, when God gives, there is no ulterior motive. There's no regret. There's no hidden agenda. There's no pretense. God isn't secretly saying, you dummy, I don't really want to help you out here, but here you go. That's not what God says. And the same should be true of us as we ask God in faith. For his help. One commentary explained it this way. The doubter, not possessing an anchor for the soul, does not pray to God with the consistency and sincerity of purpose. Adrift with the shifting winds of motive and desire, he wants wisdom from God one day and the wisdom of the world the next. That's the doubter. That's the double-minded person. And that, that, that word double-minded literally means of two minds or of two souls. Two psyches. Today we might say they're two-faced. They're hypocrites. They say one thing here and another thing there. They say one thing here and they do something different. One mind tells you to trust God and no sooner do you resolve to do so than the other mind tells you that your problems are too big even for God. Don't waste your breath. And so you go back and forth between God and the problem. God and the problem kind of bobbing along the ocean like a cork. Makes me think of Peter. Remember Peter, when he was walking on the stormy sea, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he could walk on, that, on the wind and the waves. 
But the minute he took his eyes off of that and looked at the, the terror around him, he began to sink. Paul describes a similar inner struggle in Romans chapter 17. That's the, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 7. That's the, the passage where he talks about how, how his, our, our flesh is at war with our spirit, right? It's like we have this inner struggle and we want to do the right thing, but we don't. And we don't want to do the wrong thing, but we do. And we struggle with this obedience to God's law. And, and Paul says there, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But then he gives us the answer. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one who can save us from this double-mindedness, from this doubt that's being tossed about to and fro. Because the main problem for Paul in that passage isn't about just the struggle with sin and temptation. It's not even about struggling with doubt. The real problem that Paul is getting at is that we keep relying on our own limited understanding. We keep relying on our own flawed wisdom. So in Romans chapter 8, I want you to listen to what he says here in verses 1 through 4. Therefore, so considering this conversation about this struggle between doing what you should and shouldn't do, wanting to do what's right but you do what's wrong, this battle between your sinful flesh and the Spirit of God within you, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from that law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, when you hear that word law, think, think, you know, trying to do it on our own. Trying to earn God's favor. Trying to figure out life in our own wisdom. The, the, what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Jesus came so that we didn't have to try to do it on our own. So we didn't have to try to do it in our own power and strength. So we didn't have to try to figure out life in our own wisdom. Jesus came to give us all of that. And then look down at verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So just like as James is talking about this wisdom in the face of suffering, so is Paul. That, that as we are suffering in this present world, we can count it all joy because we can look beyond this moment to the glory that will be revealed in us someday. And that requires the wisdom of God. Look back down next at verse 26. He says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness because we don't know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, and He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We come to God in prayer, even if we don't know what to pray for, even if we don't know the words that we're supposed to say, if we come to Him in that dependence, in that humility, the Spirit Himself will give us the words to pray. God so wants to bless us. He so wants to give us good things. He even gives us the faith. He even gives us the words to pray to ask for it. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? If we want wisdom to handle life's trials and do it with joy, we must pray in faith. And what does it mean to pray in faith? Do you think it means to pick something that you want God to do for you and you kind of sock yourself up into believing that God will actually do it? That's not biblical faith, by the way. That's wishful thinking. 
That's new age, positive, power of positive thinking, mumbo-jumbo. If that's what people think about faith, is it any wonder people get disillusioned about it and they stop praying? You know, you wanted God to do something, you asked Him for it, you, you, you believed, you really, really hoped that God would do what you were asking Him to do, but He didn't. And so you say, yeah, this faith stuff, it doesn't work for me. Man, I tried it. I asked God for stuff, and I believed He was going to do it, and He didn't do it. Nothing happened. Listen, the problem is not with God. The problem is with your mistaken understanding of faith. Faith is not believing that God will do what we want Him to do. Faith is believing that God will do what He has promised to do. Amen? That's a big difference. I can want God to do all kinds of stuff. He's not obligated to do it. But God obligates Himself to do what He has promised to do. So let's go back to this comparison, this description of the single-mindedness of God's generosity, His desire to give with the double-mindedness or our lack of faith that He will give. We can put a positive spin on that and say, God gives single-mindedly, but only to those who are single-minded toward Him. If you are single-minded toward God, if you pray in faith without wavering, without being double-minded, God will give sincerely, generously, single-mindedly to you. That's what James promises. God will give us wisdom for handling our trials if we ask Him in faith. Believing that He is a good God who wants to give us good gifts without hesitation, without finding fault. And if we believe that without wavering, we will receive the wisdom we need. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, if we ask and seek and knock, trusting in our good Father who wants to give good gifts to His children, He'll answer. He'll provide our needs. He'll open those doors. He'll give us wisdom. Our problem is that we tend to fail in either the asking part of the equation or the believing part of the equation. But if we ask, believing, He will give us the wisdom that we lack. You know, right now, it's as if we see in a dark, distorted mirror. But there's coming a day when we'll see all things clearly. And when that day comes, I think we'll look back and realize that God answered more prayers than we thought He did. I think we'll look back and realize that God gave us more wisdom in our time of need than we thought we had. Because He is a good God who loves us. And listen, the greatest gift that God gives is the gift of faith and salvation through Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God's picture of grace and mercy is always tilted out, ready to pour out forgiveness if we but come and ask. The greatest prayer you can pray, the prayer that God is most eager to answer is a prayer of faith that says, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I ask you to forgive me of my sins and come and live within me and help me to follow your way. Maybe this morning you need to do that today. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to say, God, I lack so much in my life and I need Jesus to fill me with His Spirit. I need Jesus to forgive me and wash away my sins and make me new. I want to follow You, Lord. I invite you to come and do that right now today, this morning. You can have that prayer answered. Maybe God is speaking to you about uniting with our church family. You're already believers. You've been baptized. You've been worshiping with us. And 
this is where God wants you to grow and mature and to serve Him. We invite you to come. Or maybe this morning God is convicting you because you've been trying to deal with some situation in your life on your own, in your own wisdom, in your own strength, and it's just not working. Maybe you, your prayer life is lacking. You don't pray as you should. You don't pray as often as you should. You don't pray in the belief that you should. Maybe God would have you to come this morning and just say, God, forgive me for my my foolish self-reliance, for leaning on my own understanding. Instead, this morning, I want to acknowledge you in all my ways so that you can make smooth my path. Whatever God's Spirit is speaking to you this morning, the wise thing to do is to obey. Let's stand together. Let's pray. You come as God's Spirit leads you. Father, thank you for seeing us and knowing us better than we know ourselves and loving us anyway. You are so well aware of all of our faults and failings, of our weaknesses and our struggles, and yet you still love us and desire to bless us and to pour out your grace and mercy upon us if we but ask and believe. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that needs to trust their life to Jesus for salvation, if there's anybody today that needs to come and make public that decision already, to follow you in baptism and to unite with this church, I pray you would lead them to come now, God. If there's anybody here, Father, that has another decision that you're working in their life, you're speaking to their hearts, you're, you're convicting them in some way, Lord, may they step out in faith and full confidence in who you are to be obedient. We ask all this in Jesus' name.